Hey folks, how you doing? Oh, that's interesting. Huh, <laughs> okay, hold on now. Where am I at? Hello? Hello, is there anyone out there? Can you hear me? Can you see me? Hold on. Okay, no, I've got a ton of questions now. Hey, why is my camera totally blacked out? Okay, hold hold on. Why can't, why am I invisible? What's going on here? Ah, there we go. Okay. Oh, duh. It's because I... Yeah, I definitely do need to uncover my webcam. Uh, so I've got this, you know, I've got this sweet new webcam here, which, frankly, I don't know if you can tell the difference. It, on my end, it looks like the frame rate's better, for sure. Uh, the color might be slightly better, but uh, I do have to remember to flip up the little lens cover when I use it, don't I? I probably do, otherwise it's just going to look like this, isn't it? Which is no good. Hello! <laughs> it's, like I'm, it's like I'm sort of like pushing up a, a, a cover on my portrait here. Hey folks! How you doing? Hi! Um, did I boot up ever so slightly earlier? Yes, I did. Uh, I've been running at about 10 after uh, these days, 10 after the top of the hour, but uh, folks, today we've got some stuff that we need to get to, don't we? Hey, Dahlia, I saw, I was considering doing it afterward, um, just because I thought more people might be in here, but um, as you've mentioned that maybe you're not going to be able to make it all the way through the stream, I figure, you know what, how about now? Uh, folks, guess what we've got? We got sound bites. We have sound bites and uh, the, oh, you can see a note that I wrote to myself here, just about the word opprobrium, because uh, I wanted to make sure that I looked that up, but everybody, I want to, uh, I would like to introduce you all to yet another soundbite. Now, for those of you who don't know, soundbites are some fun stuff that we get into. Uh, basically, if you are a patron over on Patreon, uh, you can go ahead and send me a script every month. Uh, Dahlia has sent me a few, which frankly, for most people would be off limits. But for Dahlia, I am <laughs> certainly willing to make an exception um, because... Dahlia is, you know, like the, <laughs> I don't know if Dahlia could find something that's like 10,000 words long, so instead we're gonna, Dahlia gets to, to aggregate between a few. Only Dahlia. Maybe not only Dahlia, but probably only Dahlia. Um, but, folks, uh, I would like to introduce you all to uh, a chapter here of Tuck Everlasting. And I almost wonder sometimes if I should go into some of these without telling you what they are. Um, but I think for this for this run here, uh, it seems appropriate that uh, I find some decent art to work with. Um, Dahlia has very interestingly requested Chapter 5 of Tuck Everlasting. And that's the one I'm going to try to do here, like I said, because Dahlia, uh, it sounds like you might not be here for the entire stream. I want I want if you pass out, I, I want you to, <laughs> to at least have been here for this. So, sound bites before we get into our full stream tonight. Um, although i got to be careful because I'm pretty sure our stream tonight is going to be like... I'm doing like 14,000 words without the sound bite, so let's see, let's see how that all goes. Uh, let me check if my mute button works. It does, perfect. Okay, we're all good. <laughs> Dahlia says, I super appreciate it, dear. And I'm used to Dahlia calling people dear, but what I thought it said was, I appreciate it, sugar. And I was like, now that's a new one. You you went you went hella south there, didn't you? Ooh, I can't, ooh, shh, 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 this is a Thursday. I can't say that. I can't say that on a Thursday. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Z-Laws, uh, it is going to be a pretty long stream, I think, overall, Z-Laws, uh, which I don't believe I've seen that name in here on the, uh, on the Twitch chat, so Z-Laws, welcome. 
welcome. It's good to have you here. I don't think I've ever seen it. It's not pinging anything like, oh, I've seen it once or twice back in the old days. <laughs> okay, now, uh, let's look up some... Let's let's grab a bit of art here. Uh, as you can see, I've got a, a whole bunch of... <laughs> A whole bunch of searches from from uh, random stuff for for Percy Jackson. Let's see. I think we want to go with like a woodland spring <laughs> or something like that. Let's see. Hmm. None of this is. Oh wait, hold on. I like this. I like stuff that's kind of brooding. Y'all, I think probably understand that about me by now. But you know, I, I tend towards some of the darker. Uh, imagery, not necessarily in theme, but just in composition, really. For these sound bites, I also kind of like the the more abstract stuff in general. Um, maybe this is the right answer. Do we think this is the right answer, gang? What do we think of this one? What do we think of this? Let's just maybe this works for us. Maybe this is good. Okay. You know what? I'm going to roll with it. Everyone, welcome back to Sound Bites. Uh, Zilaw's been here for almost a year. I believe you, but, uh, you know, I don't really, like, I don't see it much unless you're you're rolling in chat. And I think Zilaw's, I don't remember Zilaw's name popping up in chat before. Zilaw says, I'm rarely on Twitch, just making sure to follow. And Zilaw's, I appreciate you. For sure, I absolutely do. Um, yeah, we're at 921 followers. Like, it's it's kind of interesting to be nearing a thousand. That's 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 interesting indeed because, you know, like uh, back on uh, YouTube, really, really kind of like messed with my sort of how I perceive progress on the numbers on the numbers end of things uh, because you know I was at about 5,000 there, but uh, <laughs> the the um, uh, I don't know that I, I got up to about 5,000 there and to see myself like nearing a thousand here that's fairly encouraging so Zlaws I appreciate you I appreciate you Sander yes indeed I very well may be able to see it. I may have the ability to see it as a mod or a streamer but <laughs> but it's it's more a matter of like how well do I know this person and uh, Zlaws it sounds like you know me fairly well I don't know you yet yet but and, and now I'm just going to, like, push you, <laughs> Zilaz. Now I'm going to drag you into this. I'm, hey, Zilaz, where are you from? Do you remember that day when we, when we met uh, Sika? Um, Sika came in and we played some Among Us together. And it's just, like, bugging Sika because I wanted to get to know Sika better. That one was a little different because uh, they sounded like they were from uh, the UK. And they had made mention of where they were from before. So that wasn't totally out of the blue. But, yeah, Zilaz, guess what? You're my new obsession. Just when I thought I'd say it all, I could say it. <laughs> okay. Um, all of this has been, of course, uh, this has been related to what we're about to read. I don't know how, but I'll invent it later. It's fine. Everyone, this is Chapter 5 of Tuck Everlasting. Let me make sure we get a good recording here. I'm going to shut off the AC. All right. Let's do this thing. Tuck Everlasting. Chapter 5. Winnie woke early next morning. 
The sun was only just opening its own eye on the eastern horizon, and the cottage was full of silence. But she realized that sometime during the night she had made up her mind. She would not run away today. Where would I go, anyway? She asked herself. There's nowhere else I really want to be. But in another part of her head, the dark part, where her oldest fears were housed, she knew there was another sort of reason for staying at home. She was afraid to go away alone. It was one thing to talk about being by yourself, doing important things, but quite another when the opportunity arose. The characters in the stories she always read seemed to go off without a thought or a care, but in real life, well, the world was a dangerous place. People were always telling her so, and she would not be able to manage without protection. They were always telling her that, too. No one ever said precisely what it was she would not be able to manage, but she did not need to ask. Her own imagination supplied the horrors. Still, it was galling, this having to admit she was afraid. And when she remembered the toad, she felt even more disheartened. What if the toad should be out by the fence again today? What if he should laugh at her secretly and think she was a coward? Well, anyway, she could at least slip out right now and decided to go into the wood to see if she could discover what had really made the music the night before. That would be something, anyway. She did not allow herself to consider the idea that making a difference in the world might require a bolder venture. She merely told herself, consolingly, Of course, while I'm in the wood, if I decide never to come back, well then, that'll be that. She was able to believe in this because she needed to, and believing was her own true promising friend once more. It was another heavy morning, already hot and breathless, but in the wood the air was cooler and smelled agreeably damp. Winnie had been no more than two slow minutes walking timidly under the interlacing branches when she wondered why she had never come here before. Why, it's nice, she thought with great surprise, for the wood was full of light, entirely different from the light she was used to. It was green and amber and alive, quivering in splotches on the padded ground, fanning into sturdy stripes between the tree trunks. There were little flowers she did not recognize, white and palest blue and endless tangled vines, and here and there a fallen log, half-rotted but soft with patches of sweet green velvet moss. There were creatures everywhere. The air fairly hummed with their daybreak activity. Beetles and birds and squirrels and ants, and countless other things unseen, all gentle and self-absorbed, and not in the least alarming. There was even, she saw with satisfaction, the toad. It was sitting on a low stump, and she might not have noticed it, for it looked more like a mushroom than a living creature sitting there. As she came abreast of it, however, it blinked, and the movement gave it away. See? she exclaimed. I told you I'd be here first thing in the morning. The toad blinked and nodded. Or perhaps it was only swallowing a fly, but then it nudged itself off the edge of the stump and vanished into the underbrush. It must have been watching me, said Winnie to herself, and very glad. It must have been watching for me, said Winnie to herself, and she was very glad she had come. She wandered. For a long time, looking at everything, listening to everything, proud to forget the tight, pruned world outside, 
humming a little now, trying to remember the pattern of the melody she had heard the night before. And then up ahead, in a place where the light seemed brighter and the ground somewhat more open, something moved. Winnie stopped abruptly and crouched down. If it's really elves, she thought, I can have a look at them. And, though her instinct was to turn and run, she was pleased to discover that her curiosity was stronger. She began to creep forward. She would just get close enough, she told herself, just close enough to see. And then she would turn and run. But when she came near, up behind a sheltering tree trunk, and peered around it, her mouth dropped open, and all thought of running melted away. There was a clearing directly in front of her, at the center of which an enormous tree thrust up, its thick roots rumpling the ground ten feet in every direction. Sitting relaxed, with his back against the tree, was a boy, almost a man. He seemed so glorious to Winnie, she lost her heart at once. He was thin and sunburned, this wonderful boy, with a thick mop of curly brown hair, and he wore his battered trousers and loose grubby shirt with as much self-assurance as if they were silk and satin. A pair of green suspenders, more decorative than useful, gave the finishing touch, for he was shoeless and there was a twig tucked between the toes of one foot. He waved the twig idly as he sat there, his face turned up to gaze at the branches far above him. The golden morning light seemed to glow all around him, while brighter patches fell, now on his lean brown hands, now on his hair and face, as the leaves stirred over his head. Then he rubbed an ear carelessly, yawned, and stretched. Shifting his position, he turned his attention to a little pile of pebbles next to him. As when he watched, scarcely breathing, he moved the pile carefully to one side, pebble by pebble. Beneath the pile, the ground was shiny wet. The boy lifted a final stone, and Winnie saw a low spurt of water arcing up and returning like a fountain into the ground. He bent and put his lips to the spurt, drinking noiselessly, and then he stood up again, drew his sleeve across his mouth. As he did this, he turned his face in her direction, and their eyes met. For a long moment, they looked at each other in silence, the boy with his arm raised to his mouth. Neither of them moved. At last, his arm fell to his side. You may as well come out, he said with a frown. When he stood up, embarrassed and because of that, resentful. I didn't mean to watch you, she protested as she stepped into the clearing. I didn't know anyone would be here. The boy eyed her as she came forward. What are you doing here? He asked her sternly. It's my wood, said Winnie, surprised by the question. I can come here whenever I want to. At least, I was never here before, but I could have come any time. Oh, said the boy, relaxing a little. You're one of the Fosters, then. I'm Winnie, she said. Who are you? I'm Jesse Tuck, he answered. I do. And he put out a hand. Winnie took his hand, staring at him. 
He was even more beautiful up close. Do you live nearby? She managed at last, letting go of his hand reluctantly. I never saw you before. You come here a lot. No one's supposed to. It's our wood, she added quickly. It's all right, though, if you come here. I mean, it's all right with me. The boy grinned. No, I don't live nearby, and no, I don't come here often. I'm just passing through. And thanks, I'm glad it's all right with you. That's good, said Winnie irreverently. She stepped back and sat down primly a short distance from him. How old are you, anyway? she asked, squinting at him. There was a pause. At last he said, Why do you want to know? Just wondered, said Winnie. All right. I'm a hundred and four years old, he told her solemnly. No, I mean really, she persisted. She persisted. Well then, he said, if you must know, I'm seventeen. Seventeen? That's right. Oh, said Winnie hopelessly. Seventeen. That's old. You have no idea. He agreed with a nod. Winnie had the feeling he was laughing at her, but decided it was a nice kind of laughing. Are you married? She asked next. This time he laughed out loud. <laughs> no, I'm not married. Are you? Now it was Winnie's turn to laugh. Of course not, she said. I'm only ten, but I'll be eleven pretty soon. And then you'll get married, he suggested. Winnie laughed again, her head on one side, admiring him. Then she pointed out to the spurt of water. Is that good to drink? She asked. I'm thirsty. Jesse Tuck's face was instantly serious. Oh, that, no, no, it's not, he said quickly. You mustn't drink from it. It comes right up out of the ground. It's probably pretty dirty. And he began to pile the pebbles up and over again. But you drank some, Winnie reminded him. Oh, do you see that? He asked her anxiously. Well, me, I'll drink anything. I mean, I'm used to it. It wouldn't be good for you, though. Why not? Said Winnie. She stood up. It's mine, anyway, if it's in the wood. I want some. I'm about as dry as dust. And when she went to where he sat, oh, and she went to where he sat and knelt down beside the pile of pebbles. Believe me, Winnie Foster, said Jessie. It would be terrible for you if you drank any of this water. Just terrible. I can't let you. Well, I still don't see why not, said Winnie plaintively. I'm getting thirstier every minute. If it didn't hurt you, it won't hurt me. If my papa was here, he'd let me have some. You're not going to tell him about it, are you? said Jesse. His face had gone very pale under the sunburn. He stood up and put a bare foot firmly on the pile of pebbles. I knew this would happen sooner or later. Now what am I going to do? As he said this, there was a crashing sound among the trees and a voice called, Jesse? Oh, thank goodness, said Jesse, blowing out his cheeks in relief. Here comes Ma and Miles. They'll know what to do. And sure enough, a big, comfortable-looking woman appeared, leading a fat old horse, and at her side was a young man almost as beautiful as Jesse. It was May Tuck and her other son, Jesse's older brother. And at once, when she saw the two of them, 
Jesse with his foot on the pile of pebbles and Winnie on her knees beside him. She seemed to understand. Her hand flew to her bosom, grasping the old brooch fastened on her shawl, and her face went bleak. "'Well, boys,' she said, "'here it is. The worst is happening at last.' And there it is. The end of our first soundbite of the day. We may do more later on, but I wanted to catch that one while uh, Dolly was still in the building, as it were. Folks, thank you very much for listening. As I mentioned, this is Soundbites. And if y'all are curious about Soundbites, go ahead and uh, check out over on Patreon. I've got a guide to them over there. If you're wondering sort of uh, how they work, essentially, uh, you can send me a script every month. Give me direction for the characters. Give me uh, tone direction or whatever you like. Or just say, hey, take it away, bud. Uh, You can send me... Uh, Tumblr memes that make you laugh or a script that you've written, whatever you like. Um, That was, as I mentioned, a chapter from Tuck Everlasting, and that one was sent in by Death Metal Dahlia. So, Dahlia, thank you very much. Oops, I've got my list here, and I'm crossing things off the list, and I definitely did cross off the wrong one. Okay, there we go. All right. Oh, I see, Dahlia. Yeah, okay, so... um, I'll have to I'll have to <laughs> take another look at that. But folks, thank you very much for listening. Now, we move on to our our typical fair. Our more our more frequent fair. So, folks, today is of course Thursday. That means this is Flying Sidecar. My name is Sam and we are about to embark once more on our Flying Sidecar adventures. This is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. This is Percy Jackson and the Olympians. The Last Olympians, indeed, because this is now book five. Would you believe it? We are rounding up on the end of our second major series for this channel. Um, and, of course, you know, even prior to that, we have had uh, quite the run with um, uh, with Harry Potter. We've done all sorts of stuff on Tuesdays where we read some more classic literature like Great Gatsby and Frankenstein. We just finished up Murder on the Orient Express. And we are about to embark, not next week, not the week after that, but starting on the 30th, we're about to embark on Alice in Wonderland. So... I hope you will join me for those. But for right now, we're talking about Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Now, what's Percy Jackson's deal? Where has he been? What has he been up to? We have to do a bit of review, don't we? Um, But first, before we get into that, I definitely want to say hi to folks. Uh, Hey, roll it. Death Metal Dahlia. Sander. Big Mama. Missy. Memnite. Uh, Y'all, I hope everyone is doing quite well. What other names we got in here? Z-Laws. I don't know if you're still with us for right now, but hey, I hope you're having a great one. Um... Let's see, who else? Swan Song, hello, hello, hello. Um, and I think that's uh, I think that's a lot of the names I've seen in here recently. Um, okay, all right, all right, all right. Now, oh, and of course, Jade Dragon. Over on, over on Discord, uh, we've got, of course, Jade Dragon. And I'm going to guess Sander? Yup, I was correct. Dahlia says, by the way, patrons need to go vote on what we are doing next Tuesday. Yes, indeed. Head on over to um, uh, to Patreon, and you can jump in on that poll. You can vote for as many as you like, and uh, you're going to help decide what we're going to do on Tuesday, because I didn't want to start a book and then have a whole week where I'm not streaming and have to skip a week and then have to come back to it, especially because it's a short book. Blah, 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 blah. So we're just going to take... Tuesday, uh, our typical stream happens starting at noon, and we're going to take that slot instead of reading. We're going to do whatever the patrons over there decide. So if you're a patron or you want to become a patron, jump in on that vote. Um, 
Uh, and if you want to find the links for the things that I'm talking about, you can go ahead and find it right there at that link. Um, <laughs> Sparkle Love Good says, my husband said he would join next week. I'm so excited. That would be fantastic, Sparkle Love Good. That would be lovely. Delightful. Tenacious says, I hopped in during the last soundbite and I thought Percy Jackson had started. No, and that's why I'm, I am starting to put the uh, the sort of soundbite like decal up on the screen there. Just It's just a banner that says soundbite. Um, that way people know when they're coming in like, okay, I haven't missed the reading. Um, but uh, yeah, I do think we've got, we've got a leader right now over on that poll. Um, but uh, yeah, go check it out. Um, and of course, don't forget, folks, as of uh, tonight after the stream, um, I've realized it's it doesn't make any sense for me to push people toward it during the stream. So just after tonight's stream, it's going to be going uh, for about one week, we're taking the poll for what we are actually going to be reading after Percy Jackson on Thursdays. So don't forget, join up over on Discord. I will be pinging y'all over there so you know when that vote is actually happening. I'll just be pinging everyone. It'll be a new channel, so it's not going to be... The, that, that channel has not been set up yet. I'm going to be doing that tonight after the stream. So uh, that will be up there for a week. It will probably be up there um, basically through next Thursday. Um, and then Thursday, you know, as Thursday at midnight. Next Thursday at midnight, that vote will be closed. So um, make sure that uh, sometime during this week, I'll remind you again next week, go over to Discord and make sure you vote for what we're going to be reading next after we're done with Percy Jackson and the Olympians. All right, now folks, folks, let's talk a bit of review, don't you think? It seems appropriate to me. Let me get my AC back on just for this time being. What did we see last time? We, of course, we were starting a new book last week. Uh, chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1, I go cruising with explosives. And chapter 2, I meet some fishy relatives. What's the deal? What's Percy Jackson up to? Um, of course, the, the, the sort of blanket summary for the rest of the series is Percy Jackson is not just a normal kid, as he thought. Um, not just a normal sort of, uh, you know, troubled kid. He is the son of a human and Poseidon. And he has now gone to join other half-bloods like himself, and they are really responsible for a lot of the interactions between the mortal world and the world of gods, the world of myth and mythology. Um, there are, the Greek gods are alive, but not necessarily well, because the old battle, the, you know, one of the very first battles of all cosmology, the battle between the titans and the gods apparently is not entirely over. The first one's done, the gods won, the titans were put away, but the the titan Kronos is plotting to come back and try, try to overthrow Olympus and the gods once and for all. And unfortunately, he's picked up some support. Um, there are some half-bloods who are pretty dissatisfied with the way that the gods have run things or the way that simply their godly parents have treated them, and maybe rightly so. Now, as of the start of this book, um, the god Kronos has come back to the world, uh, finally in a body. He was in pieces down in Tartarus, as many of you know, um, but now he has overtaken the body of one of these disgruntled, uh, disenf uh, disenfranchised? What's the right word I'm thinking of here? Uh, one of these, um, disenfranchised is not the right word. Where are we at here? Um, I think maybe the best word would be um, coerced or even, um, uh, dis displaced? That's not even right either. Um, essentially these half-bloods who are, um, uh, very angry with the gods for personal reasons or sort of, uh, you know, world reasons, 
looking at how the gods have run things. Luke is sort of at the top of that list. He's a son of Hermes, uh, but Hermes never really paid much attention to him, and so, seeing that, seeing the way that the other gods behaved and treated their children, um, Luke became a high-ranking member of Kronos' army. Not only that, but... But, uh... Eventually gave up his body, or perhaps had his body taken from him. We're actually not sure, as of the end of last book, beginning of this book, which it was. But now, Kronos inhabits Luke's body, um, and uh, he has a blade that rends your soul from your body. So, uh, bad news on all fronts. The things they've been trying to prevent, they've been able to just fend it off long enough, but with all these distractions in the background, the bad guys are continuing to do their work, and they've succeeded in bringing Kronos back out of the pit from Tartarus. Yeah, disgruntled works, but it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't communicate the severity of the issue. But, y'all know what I mean, at the very least. Um, so, if not efficient, effective, I'll, I'll settle for it. So, Chapter one of this book, uh, I go cruising with explosives, uh, and then chapter two, I meet some fishy relatives. Basically, chapter one, Percy is trying to go on a, a date, it seems, with Rachel Elizabeth Dare. Um, he seems like he's pretty close with her at this point, in the interim between last book and this one. But he gets interrupted. Um, one of the Hephaestus half-bloods, this is um, uh, Charles Beckendorf arrives and says, hey, it's mission time. Uh, we have to go and prevent the Princess Andromeda. This is the giant ship that the uh, the Titan army has kind of been using as a floating fortress. Um, it's approaching and we have to stop it. They try to do so and after a bit of uh, some real like splinter cell kind of nonsense, uh, some real Rainbow Six Siege business, they, they are able to plant the explosives and Percy is able to escape. But Charles Beckendorf, unfortunately, gives his life for the cause and is now dead. Percy just barely escapes, and after waking up from being unconscious, when we launch into chapter two here, um, Percy is in his father's domain. He is down in Poseidon's kingdom, and this is his first time being here. He should be excited, except things are not looking good. It looks very bleak, in fact. Uh, the titans of the ocean, Oceanus, etc., they are awake, they're angry, and they are pushing as hard as they can against Poseidon, uh, who appears to have aged, you know, 20 or 30 years since Percy last saw him, because he reflects the state of his domain. And the ocean is not well. They're holding the line, and Percy wants to stay and help, because that's kind of how he is, and yet Poseidon sends him back. Um, back to the world above above the surface, um, and he will indeed. Uh, he, he's going to rejoin Camp Half Blood and help out there. He just has to leave his father under the ocean. So that is where we're at. Uh, Roland says, "I was thinking about something in Book Three. Luke begged Talia to kill the uh, Ophiotaurus, or else they would have to uh, use another way. Would they have actually used the Ophiotaurus? Would Luke not have given up his body to Kronos?" That's interesting. Yeah, if, if if that initial plan had worked, would they would they have, you know, would, would Luke have given up his body still? Was that still part of the plan? Yeah. It, it, we're not going to know necessarily unless they talk about it at some point here in this book. I don't think we're going to find out. There's our review, folks. 
I hope you're ready. Uh, last week was a short one. This one is of a much more average, even above average length. So I believe it's time for us to begin. Welcome back to Camp Half-Blood. Chapter 3. I get a peek at my death. If you want to be popular at Camp Half-Blood, don't come back from a mission with bad news. Word of my arrival spread as soon as I walked out of the ocean. Our beach is on the north shore of Long Island, and it's enchanted so most people can't even see it. People don't just appear on the beach unless they're demigods or gods or really, really lost pizza guys. It's happened, but that's another story. Anyway, that afternoon, the lookout on duty was Connor Stoll from the Hermes cabin. When he spotted me, he got so excited he fell out of his tree. Then he blew the conch horn to signal the camp and ran out to greet me. Connor had a crooked smile that matched his crooked sense of humor. He's a pretty nice guy, but you should always keep your wallet on hand when he's around, and do not, under any circumstances, give him access to shaving cream, unless you want to find your sleeping bag full of it. He's got curly brown hair and is a little shorter than his brother Travis, which is about the only way I can tell them apart. They're both so unlike my old enemy Luke, it's hard to believe they're all sons of Hermes. Percy, he yelled, what's happened? Where's Beckendorf? Then he saw my expression, and his smile melted. Oh no. Poor Selina. Holy Zeus, when she finds out. Together we climbed the sand dunes. A few hundred yards away, people were already streaming toward us, smiling and excited. Percy's back, they were probably thinking. He saved the day, maybe he brought souvenirs. I stopped at the dining pavilion and waited for them. No sense rushing down there to tell them what a loser I was. I gazed across the valley and tried to remember how Camp Half-Blood looked the first time I ever saw it. That seemed like a bajillion years ago. From the dining pavilion, you could see pretty much everything. Hills ringed the valley. The tallest, Half-Blood Hill, Talia's pine tree stood with the golden fleece hanging from its branches magically protecting the camp from its enemies. The guard dragon, Peleus, was so big now I could see him from here, curled around the tree trunk, lending up smoke signals as he snored. To my right spread the woods. To my left, the canoe lake glittered and climbed, and the climbing wall glowed from the lava pouring down its side. Twelve cabins, one for each Olympian god, made a horseshoe pattern around the commons area. Further south were the strawberry fields, the armory, and the four-story big house, with its sky-blue paint job and its bronze eagle weather vane. In some ways, the camp hadn't changed. But you couldn't see the war by looking at the buildings of the fields. You could see it in the faces of the demigods and satyrs and naiads coming up the hill. There weren't as many at camp as four summers ago. Some had left and never come back. Some had died fighting. 
Others, we tried not to talk about them, had gone over to the enemy. The ones who were still here were battle-hardened and weary. There was little laughter at camp these days. Even the Hermes cabin didn't play so many pranks. It's hard to enjoy practical jokes when your whole life feels like one. Chiron galloped into the pavilion first, which was easy for him since he's a white stallion from the waist down. His beard had grown wilder over the summer. He wore a green t-shirt that said, My other car is a centaur, and a bow slung over his back. Percy, he said, thank the gods, but where? Annabeth ran right behind him, and I'll admit my heart did a little relay race in my chest when I saw her. It's not that she tried to look good. We've been doing so many combat missions lately, she hardly brushed her curly hair anymore. She didn't care what clothes she was wearing. Usually the same old orange camp t-shirt and jeans, and once in a while her bronze armor. Her eyes were stormy gray. Most of the time we couldn't get through a conversation without trying to strangle each other. Still, just seeing her made me feel fuzzy in the head. Last summer, before Luke had turned into Kronos and everything went sour, there had been a few times when I thought maybe, well, we might get past that strangle-each-other phase. What happened? She grabbed my arm. Is Luke... The ship blew up, I said. He wasn't destroyed. I don't know where... Selena Beauregard pushed through the crowd. Her hair wasn't combed and she wasn't even wearing makeup, which wasn't like her. Where's Charlie? She demanded, looking around like he might be hiding. I glanced at Chiron helplessly. The old centaur cleared his throat. Selena, my dear, let's talk about this at the big house. No, she muttered. No, 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 no. She started to cry, and the rest of us stood around, too stunned to speak. We'd already lost so many people over the summer, but this was the worst. With Beckendorf gone, it felt like someone had stolen the anchor for the entire camp. Finally, Clarice from the Ares cabin came forward. She put her arm around Selena. They had one of the strangest friendships ever, a daughter of the war god and the daughter of the love goddess, but ever since Selena had given Clarice advice last summer about her first boyfriend, Clarice had decided she was Selena's personal bodyguard. Clarice was dressed in her blood-red combat armor, her brown hair tucked into a bandana. She was as big and beefy as a rugby... She was as big and beefy as a rugby player, with a permanent scowl on her face, but she spoke gently to Selena. Come on, girl, she said. Let's get to the big house. I'll make you some hot chocolate. Everyone turned and wandered off in twos and threes, heading back to the cabins. Nobody was excited to see me now. Nobody wanted to hear about the blown-up ship. Only Annabeth and Chiron stayed behind. Annabeth wiped a tear from her cheek. I'm glad you're not dead, seaweed brain. Yeah, thanks, I said. Me too. Chiron put a hand on my shoulder. I'm sure you did everything you could, Percy. Will you tell us what happened? I didn't want to go through it again, but I told them the story, including my dream about the Titans. I left out the decal. 
I left out the detail about Nico. Nico had made me promise not to tell anybody about his plan until I made up my mind. And the plan was so scary, I didn't mind keeping it a secret. Chiron gazed down at the valley. We must call a war council immediately to discuss this spy and other matters. Poseidon mentioned another threat, I said. Something even bigger than the Princess Andromeda. I thought it might be the challenge that the Titan mentioned in my dream. Chiron and Annabeth exchanged looks, like they knew something I didn't. I hated it when they did that. We will discuss that also, Chiron promised. One more thing. I took a deep breath. When I talked to my father, he said to tell you that it's time. I need to know the full prophecy. Chiron's shoulders sagged, but he didn't look surprised. I dreaded this day. Very well. And Beth, we will show Percy the truth. All of it. Let's go to the attic. I'd been to the big house attic three times before, which was three times more than I wanted to. A ladder led up from the top of the staircase. I wondered how Chiron was going to get up there, being half-horse and all, but he didn't try. You know what it is, Annabeth, he told her. Bring it down, please. Annabeth nodded. Come on, Percy. The sun was setting outside, so the attic was even darker and creepier than usual. Old hero trophies were slacked everywhere. See, that's probably not the word, huh? Old hero trophies were stacked everywhere. Dented shields, pickled heads in jars from various monsters, a pair of fuzzy dice on a bronze plaque that read, Stolen from Cresor's Honda Civic by Gus, son of Hermes, 1988. I picked up a curved bronze sword, so badly bent it looked like the letter M. I could still see green stains on the metal from the magical poison that used to cover it. The tag was dated last summer. It read, Scimitar of Campe. Destroyed in the Battle of the Labyrinth. <laughs> you remember Briares throwing those rocks? I asked. Annabeth gave me a grudging smile. And Grover causing a panic? We locked eyes. I thought of a different time last summer. Under Mount St. Helens, when Annabeth thought I was going to die, and she kissed me. She cleared her throat and looked away. <clears throat> Prophecy? Right. I put down the scimitar. Prophecy. We walked over to the window. On a three-legged stool sat the oracle, a shriveled female mummy in a tie-dyed dress. A shriveled female mummy in a tie-dyed dress. Tufts of black hair clung to her skull. Glassy eyes stared out of her leathery face. Just looking at her made my skin crawl. If you wanted to leave camp during the summer, it used to be that you had to come up here to get a quest. This summer, that rule had been tossed. Campers left all the time on combat missions. We had no choice if we wanted to stop Kronos. Still, I remembered too well the green mist, the spirit of the Oracle, 
that lived inside the mummy. She looked lifeless now, but whenever she spoke a prophecy, she moved. Sometimes fog gushed out of her mouth and created strange shapes. Once, she'd even left the attic and taken a little zombie stroll into the woods to deliver a message. I wasn't sure what she would do for the great prophecy. I half expected her to start tap dancing or something. But she just sat there like she was dead, which she was. I never understood this, I whispered. What? Annabeth asked. Why it's a mummy? Percy, she didn't used to be a mummy. For thousands of years, the spirit of the oracle lived inside a beautiful maiden. The spirit would be passed on from generation to generation. Chiron told me she was like that fifty years ago. Annabeth pointed at the mummy. But she was the last. What happened? Annabeth started to say something, then apparently changed her mind. Let's just do our job and get out of here. I looked nervously at the oracle's withered face. So, what now? Annabeth approached the mummy and held out her palms. Oh, great oracle, the time is at hand. I ask for the great prophecy. I braced myself, but the mummy didn't move. Instead, Annabeth approached and unclasped one of the necklaces. I'd never paid too much attention to the jewelry before. I figured it was just hippie love beads and stuff. But when Annabeth turned toward me, she was holding a leather pouch, like a Native American medicine pouch on a cord braided with feathers. She opened the bag and pulled out a roll of parchment no bigger than her pinky. No way, I said. You mean all these years I've been asking about this stupid prophecy and it's been right here around her neck? The time wasn't right, Annabeth said. Believe me, Percy, I've read this when I was ten years old and I still have nightmares about it. Oh, great, I said. Can I read it now? Downstairs at the War Council, Annabeth said. Not in front of, you know. I looked at the glassy eyes of the oracle and decided not to argue. We headed downstairs to join the others. I didn't know it then, but it would be the last time I ever visited the attic. The senior counselors had gathered around the ping-pong table. Don't ask me why, but the rec room had become the camp's informal headquarters for war councils. When Annabeth, Chiron, and I came in, though, it looked more like a shouting match. Clarice was still in full battle gear. Her electric spear was strapped to her back. Actually, her second electric spear, since I'd broken the first one. She called the spear Maimer. Behind her back, everyone else called it Lamer. She had her boar-shaped helmet under one arm and a knife at her belt. She was in the midst of yelling at Michael Yu new head counselor for Apollo, which looked kind of funny since Clarice was about a foot taller. Michael had taken over the Apollo cabin after Lee Fletcher had died in the battle last summer. Michael stood four foot six, with another two feet of attitude. He reminded me of a ferret with a pointy nose and scrunched up features, either because he scowled so much or because he spent so much of his time looking down the shaft of an arrow. It's our loot, he yelled, yet standing on his tiptoes so he could get in Clarice's face. If you don't like it, you can kiss my quiver. Around the table, people were trying not to laugh. 
The Stoll brothers, Pollux from the Dionysus cabin, Katie Gardner from Demeter, even Jake Mason, the hastily appointed new counselor for Hephaestus, managed a faint smile. Only Selena Beauregard didn't pay any attention. She sat beside Clarice and stared vacantly into the ping-pong net. Her eyes were red and puffy. A cup of hot chocolate sat untouched in front of her. It seemed unfair she should be here. I couldn't believe Clarice and Michael standing over her arguing about something as stupid as loot, which she'd just lost Beckendorf. I couldn't believe Clarice... I'm going to back up a little further. It seemed unfair that she had to be here. I couldn't believe... One more time, maybe? It seemed unfair that she had to be here. I couldn't believe Clarice and Michael standing over her, arguing about something as stupid as loot when she just lost Beckendorf. Hey, stop it! I yelled. What are you guys doing? Clarice glowered at me. Tell Michael not to be a selfish jerk! Oh, that's perfect coming from you, Michael said. The only reason I'm here is to support Selena, Clarice shouted. Otherwise, I'd be back in my cabin. What are you talking about? I demanded. Pollux cleared his throat. Clarice has refused to speak to any of us until her issue is resolved. She hasn't spoken for three days. It's been wonderful, Travis Stoll said wistfully. What issue? I asked. Clarice turned to Chiron. You're in charge, right? Does my cabin get what we want or not? Chiron shuffled his hooves. My dear, as I've already explained, Michael is correct. Apollo's cabin has the best claim. Besides, we have more important matters. Sure, Clarice snapped. Always more important matters than what Air Race needs. We're just supposed to show up and light up when we need us, not complain. Yeah, that would be nice, Connor Stoll muttered. Clarice gripped her knife. Maybe I should ask Mr. D. As you know, Chiron interrupted, his tone slightly angry now. Our director, Dionysus, is busy with the war. He can't be bothered with this. I see, Clarice said. And the senior counselors? Are any of you going to side with me? Nobody was smiling now. None of them met Clarice's eyes. Fine, Clarice turned to Selena. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get into this when you just lost... Anyway... I apologize. To you. Nobody else. Selena didn't seem to register her words. Clarice threw her knife at the ping-pong table. Oh, you can fight this war without Ares. Till I get satisfaction, no one in my cabin's gonna lift a finger to help. Have fun dying. The counselors were all too stunned to say anything as Clarice stormed out of the room. Finally, Michael Yu said, Good riddance. Are you kidding? Katie Gardner protested. This is a disaster. But she can't be serious, Travis said. Can she? Chiron sighed. Her pride has been wounded. She will calm down eventually. But he didn't sound convinced. I wanted to ask what the heck Clarice was so mad about, but I looked at Annabeth and she mouthed the words... I'll tell you later. Now, Chiron continued, if you please, counselors, Percy has brought something I think you should hear. Percy, the great prophecy. 
Annabeth handed me the parchment. It felt dry and old, and my fingers fumbled with the string. I uncurled the paper, trying not to rip it, and began to read. I have blood of the eldest dogs. Um, Percy? Annabeth interrupted. That's gods, not dogs. Oh, yeah, right, I said. Being dyslexic is one mark of a demigod, but sometimes I really hate it. The more nervous I am, the worse my reading gets. A half-blood of the eldest gods shall reach sixteen against all odds. I hesitated, staring at the next lines. A cold feeling started in my fingers as if the paper was freezing. And see the world in endless sleep? The hero's soul, cursed blade, shall reap. Suddenly Riptide seemed heavier in my pocket. A cursed blade? Chiron once told me Riptide had brought many people sorrow. Was it possible my own sword could get me killed? And how could the world fall into endless sleep unless that meant death? Percy? Chiron urged. Read the rest. My mouth felt like it was full of sand, but I spoke the last two lines. A single choice shall, shall end his days. Olympus to pers, 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 pursue, preserve, Annabeth said gently. It means to save. I know what it means, I grumbled. Olympus to preserve or raise. The room went silent. Finally, Connor Stoll said, Raise is good. Isn't it? Not raise, Selena said. Her voice was hollow, but I was startled to hear her speak at all. R-A-Z-E. It means destroy. Obliterate, Annabeth said. Annihilate. Turn to rubble. Got it. My heart felt like lead. Thanks. Everybody was looking at me, with concern, or pity, or maybe a little fear. Chiron closed his eyes as if he were saying a prayer. In horse form, his head almost brushed the lights of the rec room. You see now, Percy, why we thought it best not to tell you the whole prophecy. You've had enough on your shoulders. Without realizing what I was going to die for in the end anyway? Oh, without realizing I was going to die in the end anyway? I said, Yeah, I get it. Chiron gazed at me sadly. The guy was 3,000 years old. He'd seen hundreds of heroes die. He might not like it, but he was used to it. He probably knew better than to try and reassure me. Percy, Annabeth said, You know prophecies always have double meanings. It might not literally mean that you die. Yeah, sure, I said. A single choice shall end his days. That has, like, a ton of meanings, right? Uh, maybe we can stop it, Jake Mason offered. A hero's soul, cursed blade shall reap. Maybe we can find this cursed blade and destroy it. It sounds like Kronos' scythe, right? I hadn't thought about that. But it didn't matter if the cursed blade was riptide or Kronos' scythe. Either way, I doubted we could stop the prophecy. 
A blade was supposed to reap my soul. As a general rule, I preferred not to have my soul reaped. Perhaps we should let Percy think about these lines, Chiron said. He needs time. No! I folded up the prophecy and shoved it into my pocket. I felt defiant and angry, though I wasn't sure who I was angry with. I don't need time. If I die, I die. I can't worry about that, right? Annabeth's hands were shaking a little. She wouldn't meet my eyes. Let's move on, I said. We got, uh, we got other problems. We got a spy. A spy? Michael Yu scowled. I told them what had happened on board the Princess Andromeda. How Kronos had known that we were coming. How he'd shown me the silver scythe pendant he'd used to communicate with someone at camp. Selena started to cry again, and Annabeth put an arm around her shoulders. Well, Connor Stoll said uncomfortably, we've suspected that there might be a spy for years, right? Somebody kept passing information to Luke, like the location of the Golden Fleece a couple of years ago. It must be somebody who knew him well. Maybe subconsciously, he glanced at Annabeth. She'd known Luke better than anyone, of course, but Connor looked away quickly. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it could have been anyone. Yeah? Katie Gardner frowned at the Stoll brothers. She disliked them ever since they decorated the grass roof over the Demeter cabin with chocolate Easter bunnies. Yeah, like one of Luke's siblings. Travis and Connor both argued with her. Stop! Selena banged on the table so hard her hot chocolate spilled. Charlie's dead, and and you're all arguing like a bunch of little kids. She put her head down and began to sob. Hot chocolate trickled off the ping-pong table. Everybody looked ashamed. She's right, Pollock said at last. Accusing each other doesn't help. We need to keep our eyes open for a silver necklace with a scythe charm. If Kronos had one... The spy probably does, too. Michael Yu grunted. We need to find this spy before we plan our next operation. Blowing up the Princess Andromeda is not going to stop Kronos forever. No, indeed, Chiron said. In fact, his next assault is already on the way. I scowled. You mean the bigger threat that Poseidon mentioned? He and Annabeth looked at each other. It's time. Did I mention I hate it when they do that? Percy, Chiron said. We didn't want to tell you until you returned to camp. You needed a break with your mortal friends. Annabeth blushed. It dawned on me she knew I'd been hanging out with Rachel. And I felt guilty. Then I felt angry that I felt guilty. I was allowed to have friends outside of camp, right? It wasn't like, tell me what happened. I said. Chiron picked up a bronze shield from the snack table. He tossed water onto the hot plate where we usually melted nacho cheese. Steam billowed up, making a rainbow in the fluorescent lights. Chiron fished a golden drachma out of his pouch, tossed it into the mist, and muttered, O Iris, goddess of the rainbow, show us the threat. The mist shimmered. I saw the familiar image of a smoldering volcano, Mount St. Helens. As I watched, the side of the mountain exploded. Fire, ash, and lava rolled out. A newscaster's voice was saying, 
Even larger than last year's eruption, the geologists warn that the mountain may not be done yet. I knew all about last year's eruption. I'd caused it. But this explosion was much worse. The mountain tore itself apart, collapsing inward, and an enormous form rose out from the smoke and lava like it was emerging from a manhole. I hoped the mist would keep the humans from seeing it clearly, because what I saw would have caused panic and riots across the entire United States. The giant was bigger than anything I'd ever encountered. Even my demigod eyes couldn't make out its exact form through the ash and fire, but it was vaguely humanoid, and so huge it could have used the Chrysler building as a baseball bat. The mountain shook with a horrible rumbling, as if the monster were laughing. It's him, I said. Typhon. I was seriously hoping Chiron would say something good, like, No, that's our huge friend Leroy! He's going to help us! But no such luck. He simply nodded. The most horrible monster of all. The single biggest threat the gods have ever faced. He has been freed from under the mountain at last, but this scene is from two days ago. Here is what happened today. Chiron waved his hand and the image changed. I saw a bank of storm clouds rolling across the Midwest plains. Lightning flickered. Lines of tornadoes destroyed everything in their path, ripping up houses and trailers, tossing cars around like matchbox toys. Monumental floods, the announcer was saying. Five states declare disaster areas as the freak storm system wipes east, continuing the path of destruction. The camera zoomed into a column of storm bearing down on some Midwest city. I couldn't tell which one. Inside the storm, I could see the giant, just small glimpses of his true form. A smoky arm, a dark clawed hand the size of a city block. His angry roar rolled across the plains like a nuclear blast. Other smaller forms darted through the clouds, circling the monster. I saw flashes of light and realized the giant was trying to swat at them. I squinted and I saw a golden chariot flying into the blackness. Then some kind of huge bird, a monstrous owl, dived in to attack the giant. Are those... the gods? I said. Yes, Percy, Chiron said. They've been fighting him for days now, trying to slow him down. But Typhon is marching forward, toward New York. Toward Olympus. I let that sink in. How long until he gets here? Unless the gods can stop him. Perhaps five days. Most of the Olympians are there, except your father, who has a war of his own to fight. But then who's guarding Olympus? Connor Stoll shook his head. If Tyson... If Typhon gets back to New York... It won't matter who's guarding Olympus. I thought about Cronus's words on the ship. I would love to see the terror in your eyes when you realize how I will destroy Olympus. Was this what he had been talking about? An attack by Typhon? It was sure terrifying enough, but Cronus was always fooling us, misdirecting our attention. It seemed too obvious for him, and in my dream, the Golden Titan had talked about several more challenges to come, as if Typhon were only the first. It's a trick, 
I said. We have to warn the gods. Something else is going to happen. Chiron looked at me gravely. Something worse than Typhon. I hope not. We have to defend Olympus, I insisted. Kronos has another attack planned. He did, Travis Stoll reminded me. But you sunk his ship. Everyone was looking at me. They wanted some good news. They wanted to believe that at least I'd given them a little bit of hope. I glanced at Annabeth. I could tell we were both thinking the same thing. What if the Princess Andromeda was a ploy? What if Kronos let us blow up that ship so we'd lower our guard? But I wasn't going to say that in front of Selena. Her boyfriend had sacrificed himself for that mission. Maybe you're right, I said, though I didn't believe it. I tried to imagine how things could get much worse. The gods were in the Midwest fighting a huge monster that had almost defeated them once before. Poseidon was under siege and losing a war against the sea titan Oceanus. Kronos was still out there somewhere. Olympus was virtually undefended. The demigods of Camp Half-Blood were on our own with a spy in our midst. Oh, yeah, and of... Oh, and according to the ancient prophecy, I was going to die when I turned 16, which happened to be in five days, the exact same time Typhon was supposed to hit New York. I almost forgot about that. Well, Chiron said, I think that's enough for one night. He waved his hand and the steam dissipated. The stormy battle of Typhon and the gods disappeared. That's an understatement, I muttered. And the war council adjourned. And that is the end of chapter one. Well, excuse me, that's the end of chapter three, our first of three chapters for the day. Everyone, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, let me check. Should I take my break now? Should I take my break later on? Should I take my break sometime in the future? Let's see if I should take my break yet. Let's find out here. Um, yes, now is the time. Uh, because this one was almost a, this one is uh, almost as long as the next two chapters combined. So this was our, our big long chapter for the day. It was about five thousand words. Next we got a four thousand, and after that we got a twenty five hundred. So I'm gonna take a quick break, everyone. Hey, everyone! Thank you so much for being here, uh, Dahlia. Hey, Dahlia. Um, go ahead and get some sleep. Uh, I mean that that fever is is no joke. Um, and uh, I, I do hope you can get some great rest. Uh, I hope you feel much better very soon. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for hanging out with us. As I mentioned, this is the first of three chapters that we're going to be reading today. I will be giving a quick review when we come back. So if you missed it or you're just sort of showing up a little late, that is quite all right. I will run you through it when we come back. Uh, I'm going to take a quick five-minute break. Uh, which that number is kind of interesting because as Jade has just identified, why is it always five days, says Jade. <laughs> What's the deal there? Indeed. Now, folks, I'm going to see you all in five minutes. But first, 
first, I'm going to give you a quick chatter break question because I want to know what y'all think about this. Um, I think, you know, uh, we, we've certainly seen the the sacrifices made here. We have seen um, uh, the, the ways in which Percy is willing to help, um, the ways in which he tends to rush in or rush out of things um, without, like, s- certainly Annabeth is... Annabeth operates very differently from Percy, right? She tends to make very considered decisions, and Percy definitely does not. What is it, with all of these different factors pushing in and pushing around on Percy, where do you think he's going to direct his attention? What kind of plan is Percy going to come up with next? Um... Uh, basically, I want to, I'm sort of asking you all, we, we know Percy pretty well after four whole books about this. What is Percy's next move? What do you think Percy will want to do next? There's my question, and I will see you in five minutes. Dahlia, Sander, Rollet, Wildcard, Luis, Tanisha, Swansong, Jade, hey, I love y'all. I'll see you in five. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. How you doing? Okay, so... Dahlia, I don't know if you're still here. If you are, I hope you have a fantastic night. Uh, Jade says, I hope you feel better soon, Dahlia. Indeed, indeed. So does Rollet, but you already saw that one. Um, folks, we had a bit of a chatterbreak question on our list, didn't we? Because uh, that's what we like to do here. We, we like to read these books. They're fun to read, aren't they? But we also like to sort of uh, give them a little bit of extra attention because I think that uh, understanding them can be even more fun than just reading them to read them. Do you all agree? Honestly, if you're still with me, you probably do. I've probably already weeded out the ones who are just like, oh, my. Oh, can you just read it? Oh, Sam, could you just could you just go ahead and read the thing? But uh, the answer is no. Matter of fact. Sort of turns out the answer indeed has become no over time. Uh, we've got a Chatterbreak question. That Chatterbreak question is, we, you know, we've been following Percy for quite a while now. We know some of his character traits. We know how his, his sort of, how his rules work, right? We've talked about Percy's rules and how, when he breaks them. We know what Percy's about. We know some of the things that motivate Percy and how he likes to operate. What is he going to do next? Or at the very least, what will he want to do next? Because, you know, unlike some of our other heroes or or, uh, protagonists in other books that we've read, he is often willing to listen to counsel, right? He is willing to take other people's word for things. He's willing to uh, accept other people's planning. He's fairly unique in that regard. (laughs) What is he going to do next? What is he going to want to do next? Rollet has offered a decent bit here. And Rollet, I thank you for that. Rollet says he'll want to consider Nico's plan. And of course, yes, Rollet, we've been waiting to find out what Nico's plan is since the end of the last book. I had the hiccups. Please ignore me. Although I guess (laughs) if you're going to ignore me, you should probably just head on out because there's not much else to do here if you're ignoring me. Um, maybe over on Discord. There are some cool people on Discord. You can head there. Uh, if you want to go over to Discord, because that is where we hold a lot of our votes, and we talk about all sorts of stuff, uh, and you can find out much, much more about the channel, follow those links there. One of those will take you to Discord. Um, 
this plan that Nico has had, um, he pitched it to Percy, and apparently Percy decided this is just the scariest possible thing. Um, this is also one of those unique moments where, and consider this, right? Consider this as a, as a tool that the author is employing to uh, to try and, and uh, ratchet up some of the interest here. How often does how often do we know something that Percy doesn't? Not super often, right? We we typically view the world through Percy's eyes. And so it's even less often that Percy knows something that we don't. Generally, if Percy has mentioned something, if Percy has had something mentioned to him, if he has a plan to do something, if he has suddenly understood something he didn't understand before, we find out about it. But in this instance... Percy knows what Nico's plan is, right? And the author has decided to not tell us the audience. This is, as far as I can remember, the very first time that this has happened at all in this series. Anything even like this has happened in this series. It generates a bit of interest, doesn't it? It generates some intrigue. We want to know what Percy knows. Even if they don't go through with the plan, we want to know why Percy was so insistent on keeping it sort of on the DL Right? He doesn't tell anyone else here at camp. Why is why is Percy trying to keep this secret and what is what makes it so terrifying? I want to find out. I want to find out very badly. And by that virtue, it seems like this this technique that the author is using is working. Roland says, or maybe he'll want to find the spy and see if they know anything. Okay, another good option here. Uh, Rollet has has put together a nice little like multiple choice question um, because exploring sort of a lot of the options that Percy does indeed have. Nico's plan, sure, but maybe this spy, right? We know there's well, we're very confident that there's a spy in camp. Um, maybe this is just Kronos playing games, but we can feel pretty confident there is a spy around here somewhere. They've suspected it for a long time, even before uh, Kronos mentioned it at all. I think Percy will, uh, certainly, he's not going to take kindly to the fact that someone is here sort of subverting and ruining this thing, this place that he loves and all these people. Um, or it says, or maybe he'll ask for Rachel's help. Another good option. Rachel has shown some, uh, shown some talent in perceiving things through the mist, but mostly we know that Percy likes going to people for counsel. Once again, this is sort of, if he's got a fatal flaw, it's not his sort of, uh, it's not necessarily his pride. It's not his, like, I'll do it my way kind of attitude. He's no Sinatra. He's willing to take this counsel and, and act on it. Uh, and Tanisha, with this in mind, says Percy, Annabeth, and Nico should hatch a master plan. I mean, I kind of like that. I, I, I certainly think that, at the very least, Percy should bring Annabeth in on Nico's plan because Nico has a plan. Nico does have some very unique connections and resources that many of the other demigods or even, you know, uh, some of the other folks who, you know, people like Chiron, etc. Nico has some unique resources that the rest might not have. But do we necessarily trust Nico to be a strategist? No. But fortunately, Percy does know a very good strategist, Annabeth. Um, and I think he can be fairly confident. I mean, at the very least, we as the audience know Percy doesn't suspect Annabeth in the least of being the spy. So, 
Tanisha, I think you're on a good track there, uh, and maybe Chiron as well. Between the four of them, whatever it is Nico's offering, plus Chiron's experience, plus Annabeth's strategy, plus uh, you know Percy's ability to sort of bring these people together, that sounds like a recipe for success, or at the very least, a recipe um, for uh, a, a solid tactical decision. Rollet says, what if Nico's plan is to kill the Ophiotaurus to kill Kronos? Now that... I, I mean, I would say that's fairly dark, um, and at the same time, that's a distinct possibility. If if we were to put sort of death on the table for one of these demigods, Nika would probably be the one, right? As a demigod related to Hades, he would have a little bit more insight into how some of this death stuff gets around and what it might offer them in terms of power, in terms of uh, you know possible success in the future. An interesting theory, Roland. Um... Louise says, I thought that the first time I listened and my mind changed. It was just different than what I was used to. Now I enjoy the discussion. Oh, I got you. Yeah, so Louise talking about like how uh, at first you probably just wished I would just read the thing, but you've come to enjoy the discussion. I am very glad to hear it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, as far as Rachel and uh, Swan Song is bringing it up too. Oh, Rachel has to be involved. I sent something sad will happen between Percy and her. Interesting. Uh, that would that would probably fit the genre, but in general, I think you know the 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 thing with Rachel is Percy might go to her not because she's necessarily a great tactical mind as much as he just feels comforted around her, and Percy is willing to sort of pursue that uh, as a as a sort of like um, I don't know it's it's a fairly healthy thing to do, frankly. Now. Can it get you into trouble if you start to take the uh, the the tactical tactical decisions from people that just make you feel comfortable but don't have any actual tactical insight? Yes, perhaps. But um, you know, Percy's in the midst of a lot of stress right now. I am glad he is doing something fairly healthy here and seeking out people who make him feel uh, comforted and, and make him better, improve him. Tanisha says we wouldn't necessarily have expected Nico to do well out there on his own at such a young age but he seems to have learned a lot about his own powers in a short period of time, even though Minos was manipulating him. Yeah, he has been an impressive little dude, hasn't he? Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't know how some of y'all feel about this, but uh, there is actually a series, I believe, following Nico. Um, it's, it's a whole other series um, that follows, like, Nico. I don't think it's exclusively Nico, but... Uh, we can get a lot more insight into Nico's life if if uh, y'all want to read that for yourselves. Um, or I suppose, you know, I think it's probably going to end up on the vote that I begin tonight, uh, whether we, we sort of go on to the next part of the story regardless. But yeah, it's out there. If you want to get a little deeper into Nico's head, there are opportunities for you to do so. And one of those is right here tonight. I think we are in good shape with our discussion. Let's do a quick spot of review, then we're on to chapter four. Uh, chapters uh, one and two, Percy goes on a mission. He succeeds in blowing up the Princess Andromeda, but Kronos is probably okay, and Percy does not believe that it was a success. He doesn't believe they really stopped the overall mission um, uh, to provide an, you know, Kronos' mission to essentially give the give the the gods and the demigods just one more thing to worry about percy thinks that that plan is still in place even though beckendorf sacrificed his life for it um 
Poseidon is, of course, at the bottom of the ocean, uh, fighting against the Titan Oceanus. And up above ground, in this chapter here, we see that there are more. there's more trouble to discuss. Um, out in the world, it seems like... Um, Typhus has erupted from uh, Mount St. Helens and is officially roving the world. He's currently in the Midwest, but it seems that in uh, in just a few days, he will indeed reach New York City. And we know that New York City is important because Mount Olympus is up at the very top of... Um, uh... Oh, come on now. Oh, come on now. Empire State Building. I found it. Everyone, a round of, a round of applause for me. Thank you. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, and not only that, but this this prophecy that's been sort of hanging over Percy's head for quite some time now, they managed to get the last of it. We have to hear we hear a lot from Annabeth, from especially Chiron, how the time wasn't right to share it all with you, etc. But here is here is what this full prophecy says. A half-blood of the eldest gods shall reach sixteen against all odds, and see the world in endless sleep. The hero's soul, cursed blade, shall reap. A single choice shall end his days, Olympus to preserve or raise. And that is R-A-Z-E, which, for whatever the heck reason, we've decided to use homophones uh, to describe uh, antonyms. And by that, I mean homophones, two words that sound the same, and antonyms, two words that mean opposite things. R-A-I-S-E, that's the one that most of y'all have heard, raise, and then there's R-A-Z-E, which means uh, to sort of destroy until it's flat. It, they, they mean just about opposite things. So um, uh, you, could, you could very well say, we're going to raise this building, and then we're going to raise a new one right where it was. <laughs> or, hey, we're going to raise this building, and then we're going to raise it to the ground. Um, a very strange little bit of uh, English, which I'm guessing has its roots not in English, as so many things do in this goofball of a language that we've got here. Everyone, that is the prophecy. Percy seems like uh, he is sort of coming to, not coming to terms with it, but simply using uh, kind of like uh, there is a layer of anger that has arisen and sort of, like a chocolate coating around the the peanut M&M has just sort of like masked it all in, sort of sealed it off. So it's going to be its own thing for a little while. Um, who knows if that is going to come to a head here and suddenly kind of uh, is is Percy going to be able to keep that that fear because it's got to be fear under control because he it sounds like according to this prophecy he's slated to die very soon. So folks there's our bit of review it's time to get on with the show chapter four chapter four we burn a metal shroud. I dreamed Rachel Elizabeth Dare was throwing darts at my picture. She was standing in her room. Okay, back up. I have to explain that Rachel doesn't have a room. She's at the top floor of her family's mansion, which is a renovated brownstone in Brooklyn. Her room is a huge loft with industrial lighting and floor-to-ceiling windows. It's about twice as big as my mom's apartment. Some alt-rock was blaring from her paint-covered Bose docking system. 
as far as I could tell, Rachel's only rule about music was that no two songs on her iPod could sound the same and they all had to be strange. She wore a kimono, and her hair was frizzy like she'd been sleeping. Her bed was messed up. Sheets hung over the bunch of sheets hung over a bunch of artist easels. Dirty clothes and old energy bar wrappers were strewn around the floor, but when you've got a room that big, the mess doesn't look so bad. Out the windows, you could see the entire nighttime skyline of Manhattan. The picture she was attacking was a painting of me, standing over the giant Antaeus. Rachel had painted it a couple of months ago. My expression on the picture was fierce, disturbing even, so it was hard to tell if I was a good guy or a bad guy, but Rachel said... I'd looked just like that after the battle. Demigods, Rachel muttered as she threw another dart at the canvas. And their stupid quests. Most of the darts bounced off, but a few stuck. One hung off my chin like a goatee. Someone pounded on her bedroom door. Rachel, a man called. What in the world are you doing? Turn off that... Rachel scooped up the remote control and shut off the music. Come in. Her dad walked in, scowling and blinking from the light. He had rust-colored hair, a little darker than Rachel's. It was smushed on one side like he'd fought with his pillow. His blue silk pajamas had WD monogrammed on the pocket. Seriously, who has monogrammed pajamas? What's going on? He demanded. It's three in the morning. I couldn't sleep, Rachel said. On the painting, a dart fell off my face. Rachel hid the rest behind her back, but Mr. Dare noticed. So, I take it your friend isn't coming to St. Thomas? That's what Mr. Dare called me. Never Percy, just your friend. Or young man, if he was talking to me, which he rarely did. Rachel knit her eyebrows. I don't know. Well, we leave in the morning, her dad said. If he hasn't made up his mind yet... He's probably not coming, Rachel said miserably. Happy? Mr. Dare put his hands behind his back. He paced the room with a stern expression. I imagined he did that in the boardroom of his land development company and made his employees nervous. Are you still having bad dreams? He asked. Headaches? Rachel threw her darts on the floor. I should never have told you that. I'm your father, he said. I'm worried about you. Worried about the family's reputation, Rachel muttered. Her father didn't react, maybe because he'd heard that comment before, or maybe because it was true. We could call Dr. Arkwright, he suggested. He helped you get through the death of your hamster. I was six then, she said, and no, Dad, I don't need a therapist, I just... She shook her head helplessly. Her father stopped in front of the windows. He gazed at the New York skyline as if he owned it. Which wasn't true. He only owned part of it. It'll be good for you to get away, he decided. You've had some unhealthy influences. I'm not going to Clarion Ladies' Academy, Rachel said. And my friends are none of your business. Mr. Dare smiled, but it wasn't a warm smile. It was more like... Someday you'll realize how silly you sound. Try to get some sleep, he urged. We'll be at the beach by tomorrow night. It'll be fun. Fun, 
Rachel repeated. Lots of fun. Her father exited the room. He left the door open behind him. Door? It's a loft. Rachel stared at the portrait of me. Then she walked to the easel next to it, which was covered in a sheet. I hope they're dreams, she said. She uncovered the easel. On it was a hastily sketched charcoal, but Rachel was a good artist. The picture was definitely Luke as a young boy. He was about nine years old, with a wide grin and no scar on his face. I had no idea how Rachel could have known what he looked like back then, but the portrait was so good, I had a feeling she wasn't guessing. From what I knew about Luke's life, which wasn't much, the picture showed him just before he'd found out he was a half-blood and run away from home. Rachel stared at the portrait. Then she uncovered the next easel. This picture was even more disturbing. It showed the Empire State Building with lightning all around it. In the distance, a dark storm was brewing, and a huge hand came out of the clouds. At the base of the building, a crowd had gathered. But it wasn't a normal crowd of tourists and pedestrians. I saw spears, javelins, and banners, the trappings of an army. Percy? Rachel muttered, as if she knew I was listening. What's going on? The dream faded, and the last thing I remember was wishing I could answer her question. The next morning I wanted to call her, but there were no phones at camp. Dionysus and Chiron didn't need a landline, they just called Olympus with an iris message whenever they needed something. And when demigods use cell phones, the signals agitate every monster within a hundred miles. It's like sending up a flare. Here I am! Please rearrange my face! Even within the safe borders of the camp, that's not the kind of advertising we wanted to do. Most demigods, except for Annabeth and a few others, don't even own a cell phone. And I definitely couldn't tell Annabeth, Hey, let me borrow your phone so I can call Rachel. To make the call, I would have had to leave camp and walk several miles to the nearest convenience store. Even if Chiron let me go, by the time I got there... Rachel would have been on a plane to St. Thomas. I ate a depressing breakfast by myself at the Poseidon table. I kept staring at the fissure in the marble floor where, two years ago, Nico had banished a bunch of bloodthirsty skeletons to the underworld. The memory didn't exactly improve my appetite. After breakfast, Annabeth and I walked down to inspect the cabins. Actually, it was Annabeth's turn for inspection. My morning chore was to sort through reports for Chiron. But since we both hated our jobs, we decided to do them together so it wouldn't be so heinous. We started the Poseidon cabin, which was basically just me. I'd made my bunk that morning, sort of, and straightened the minotaur horn on the wall. Well, I gave myself four out of five. Annabeth made a face. You're being generous. She used the end of her pencil to pick up an old pair of running shorts. I snatched them away. Hey, give me a break. I didn't have Tyson cleaning up after me this summer. Three out of five, Annabeth said. I knew better than to argue, so we moved along. I tried to skim through Chiron's stack of reports as we walked. There were messages from demigods, nature spirits, and satyrs all around the country, writing about the latest monster activity. 
They were pretty depressing, and my ADHD brain did not like concentrating on depressing stuff. Little battles were raging everywhere. Camp recruitment was down to zero. Satyrs were having trouble finding new demigods and bringing them to Camp Half-Blood because so many monsters were roaming the country. Our friend Talia, who led the Hunters of Artemis, hadn't been heard from in months. And if Artemis knew what had happened to them, she wasn't sharing the information. We visited the Aphrodite cabin, which of course got a 5 out of 5. The beds were perfectly made, the clothes at everyone's footlockers were color-coordinated, fresh flowers bloomed on the windowsills. I wanted to dock a point because the whole place reeked of designer perfume, but Annabeth ignored me. Great job, as usual, Selena, Annabeth said. Selena nodded listlessly. The wall behind her was decorated with pictures of Beckendorf. She sat on her bunk with a box of chocolates on her lap. I remember her dad owned a chocolate store in the village, which is how she had caught the attention of Aphrodite which is how he had caught the Aphrodite the Aphrodite of Deity. No, no, no. Which is how he'd caught the attention of Aphrodite. Do you want a bonbon? Selena asked. My dad sent them. He thought they might cheer me up. Are they any good? I asked. She shook her head. They taste like cardboard. I didn't have anything against cardboard, so I tried one. Annabeth passed. We promised to see Selena later and kept going. As we crossed the commons area, a fight broke out between the Ares and Apollo cabins. Some Apollo campers armed with firebombs flew over the Ares cabin in a chariot pulled by two pegasi. I'd never seen the chariot before, but it looked like a pretty sweet ride. Soon the roof of the Ares cabin was burning and naiads from the canoe lake rushed over to blow water onto it. Then the Ares campers called down a curse and saw the Apollo's kids' arrows turned to rubber. The Apollo kids kept shooting at the Ares kids' heads, but the arrows bounced off. Two archers ran by, chased by an angry Ares kid who was yelling in poetry, Curse me, eh? I'll make you pay! I don't want to speak in rhyme all day! Annabeth sighed. Not that again. Last time Apollo cursed a cabin, it took a week for the rhyming couplets to wear off. I shuddered. Apollo was the god of poetry as well as archery, and I'd heard him recite in person. I think I would rather be shot by an arrow. What are they fighting about anyway? I asked. Annabeth ignored me while she scribbled on her inspection scroll, giving both cabins a one out of five. I found myself staring at her, which was stupid because I'd seen her a billion times. She and I were about the same height this summer, which was a relief. Still... She seemed so much more mature. It was kind of intimidating. I mean, sure, she'd always been cute, but she was starting to be seriously beautiful. Finally, she said, That flying chariot. What? You asked what they were fighting about. Oh. Oh, yeah, right. They captured it in a raid in Philadelphia last week. Some of Luke's demigods were there with that flying chariot. The Apollo cabin seized it during the battle, but the Ares cabin led the raid. So they've been fighting about who gets it ever since. We ducked as Michael used chariot dive-bombed an Ares camper. The Ares camper tried to stab him and cuss him out in rhyming couplets. It was pretty creative about rhyming those cuss words. We're fighting for our lives, I said. And they're bickering about some stupid chariot. They'll get over it, Annabeth said. 
Clarice will come to her senses. I wasn't so sure. It didn't sound like the Clarice I knew. I scanned more reports and inspected a few more cabins. Demeter got a four, Hephaestus got a three, and probably should have gotten lower, but with Beckendorf being gone and all, we cut them some slack. Hermes got a two, which was no surprise. All campers who didn't know their godly parentage were shoved into the Hermes cabin, and since the gods were kind of forgetful, that cabin was always overcrowded. Finally, we got to Athena's cabin, which was orderly and clean as usual. Books were straightened on the shelves, the armor was polished, battle maps and blueprints decorated the walls. Only Annabeth's bunk was messy. It was covered in papers, and her silver laptop was still running. Vlakas, Annabeth muttered, which was basically calling herself an idiot in Greek. Her second-in-command, Malcolm, suppressed a smile. Yeah, we cleaned up everything else. Didn't know if it was safe to move your notes. That was probably smart. Annabeth had a bronze knife she reserved just for monsters and people who messed with her stuff. Malcolm grinned at me. We'll wait outside while you finish your inspection. The Athena campers filed out the door while Annabeth cleaned up her bunk. I shuffled uneasily and pretended to go through some more reports. Technically, even on inspection, it was against camp rules for two campers to be, like, alone in a cabin. That rule had come up a lot when Selena and Beckendorf started dating. And I know some of you might be thinking, aren't all demigods related on the godly side? Doesn't that make dating gross? But the thing is, the godly side of your family doesn't count, genetically speaking, since gods don't have DNA. A demigod would never think about dating someone who had the same godly parent, like two kids from the Athena cabin? No way. But a daughter of Aphrodite and a son of Hephaestus, they're not related, so it's no problem. Anyway, for some strange reason, I was thinking about this as I watched Annabeth straighten up. She closed her laptop, which had been given to her as a gift from the inventor of Daedalus. Oh, the inventor of Daedalus which had been given to her as a gift from the inventor, Daedalus, last summer. I cleared my throat. So, get any good info from that thing? Too much, she said. Daedalus has so many ideas, I could spend 50 years just trying to figure them all out. Yeah, I muttered. That would be fun. She shuffled her papers, mostly drawings of buildings and a bunch of handwritten notes. I knew she wanted to be an architect someday, but I'd learned the hard way not to ask what she was working on. She'd start talking about angles and load-bearing joints until my eyes glazed over. You know... She brushed her hair behind her ear like she does when she's nervous. This whole thing with Beckendorf and Selena kind of makes you think about what's important. About losing people who are important. I nodded. My brain started seizing on little random details, like the fact she was still wearing those silver owl earrings from her dad, who was the brainiac military history professor in San Francisco. Yeah, um, I stammered. Like, is everything cool with your family? Okay, really stupid question, but hey, I was nervous. Annabeth looked disappointed, but she nodded. My dad wanted to take me to Greece this summer, she said wistfully. I've always wanted to see... The Parthenon, I remembered. 
She managed to smile. Yeah. That's okay. There's going to be other summers, right? As soon as I said it, I knew it was a boneheaded com... As soon as I said it, I realized it was a boneheaded comment. I was facing the end of my days. Within a week, Olympus might fall. If the Age of the Gods really did end, the world as we knew it would dissolve into chaos. Demigods would be hunted to extinction. There would be no more summers for us. Annabeth stared at her inspection scroll. Three out of five, she muttered, for a sloppy head counselor. Come on, let's finish your reports and get back to Chiron. On the way to the big house, we read the last report, which was handwritten on a maple leaf from a satyr in Canada. If possible, the note made me feel even worse. Dear Grover, I read aloud, Wards outside Toronto, attacked by a giant evil badger. Tried to do as you suggested and summon the power of Pan. No effect. Many naiads trees destroyed. Retreating to Ottawa. <laughs> Retreating to Ottawa. Please advise. Where are you? Gleason Hedge, protector. Annabeth grimaced. You haven't heard anything from him? Even with your empathy link? I shook my head dejectedly. Ever since last summer, when the god Pan had died, our friend Grover had been drifting further and further away. The Council of Cloven Elders treated him like an outcast, but Grover still traveled all over the East Coast, trying to spread the word about Pan and convince nature spirits to protect their own little bits of the wild. He'd only come back to camp a few times to see his girlfriend, Juniper. Last I'd heard, he was in Central Park, organizing the Dryads, but nobody had ever heard or seen from him in two months. We tried to send Iris messages. They never got through. I had an empathy link with Grover, so I hoped I would know if anything bad had happened to him. Grover had told me one time that if he died, the empathy link might kill me too. But I wasn't sure if that was still true or not. I wondered if he was still in Manhattan. Then the thought about my dream of Rachel's sketch. Dark clouds closing in on the city. An army gathered around the Empire State Building. Annabeth? I stopped her by the tetherball court. I knew I was asking for trouble, but I didn't know who else to trust. Plus, I'd always depended on Annabeth for advice. Listen, I had this dream about, uh, about Rachel. I told her the whole thing, even the weird picture of Luke as a child. For a while, she didn't say anything. Then she rolled up her inspection scroll so tight she ripped it. What do you want me to say? I'm not sure. You're the best strategist I know. If you were Kronos planning this war, what would you do next? I'd use Typhon as a distraction. Then I'd hit Olympus directly while the gods were in the west. Just like in Rachel's picture. Percy, she said, her voice tight. Rachel is just a mortal. But what if a dream is true? Those other titans, they said Olympus would be destroyed in a matter of days. They said they had plenty of other challenges. And what's with that picture of Luke as a kid? We'll just have to be ready. How? I said. Look at our camp. We can't even stop fighting each other, and I'm supposed to get my stupid soul reaped. 
She threw down her scroll. I knew we shouldn't have shown you that prophecy. Her voice was angry and hurt. All I did was scare you. You run away from things when you're scared. I stared at her, completely stunned. Me? Run away? She got right in my face. Yes, you. You're a coward, Percy Jackson. We were nose to nose. Her eyes were red, and I suddenly realized when she called me a coward, maybe she wasn't talking about the prophecy. If you don't like our chances, she said, maybe you should go on that vacation with Rachel. Annabeth, if you don't like our company. That's not fair. She pushed past me and stormed toward the strawberry fields. She hit the tetherball as she passed and sent it spinning angrily around the pole. I'd like to say my day got better from there. Of course it didn't. That afternoon we had an assembly at the campfire to burn Beckendorf's burial shroud and say our goodbyes. Even the Ares and Apollo cabins called a temporary truce to attend. Beckendorf's shroud was made out of metal links, like chainmail. I didn't see how it would burn, but the fates must have helped out. The metal melted the fire and the metal melted in the fire and turned to golden smoke which rose into the sky. The campfire flames always reflected the campers' moods, and today they burned black. I hoped Beckendorf's spirit would end up in Elysium. Maybe he'd even choose to be reborn and try for Elysium in three different lifetimes so he could reach the Isles of the Blessed, which was like the Underworld's ultimate party headquarters. If anybody deserved it, Beckendorf did. Annabeth left without a word to me. Most of the other campers drifted off to their afternoon activities. I just stood there, staring at the dying fire. Selena sat nearby, crying, while Clarice and her boyfriend, Chris Rodriguez, tried to comfort her. Finally, I got up the nerve to walk over. Hey, Selena, I'm really sorry. She sniffed. Clarice glared at me, but she always glares at everyone. Chris would barely look at me. He'd been one of Luke's men until Clarice rescued him from the labyrinth last summer, and I guess he still felt guilty about that. I cleared my throat. Selena, you know, Beckendorf carried your picture. He looked at it right before he went into battle. You meant a lot to him. You made the last year the best one of his life. Selena sobbed. Yeah, good work, Percy, Clarice muttered. No, it's all right, Selena said. Thank you, Percy. I should go. You want company? Clarice asked. Selena shook her head and ran off. She's stronger than she looks. Clarice muttered, almost to herself. She'll survive. You could help with that, I suggested. You could honor Beckendorf's memory by fighting with us. You could honor Beckendorf's memory by fighting with us. Clarice went for her knife, but it wasn't there anymore. She'd thrown it on the ping-pong table during the war council. 
Not my problem, she growled. My cabin doesn't get on her. I don't fight. I noticed she wasn't speaking in rhymes. Maybe she hadn't been around when her cabin mates got cursed, or maybe she had a way of breaking the spell. With a chill, I wondered if Clarice could be Kronos's spy at camp. Was that why she was keeping her cabin out of the fight? But as much as I disliked Clarice, spying for the Titans didn't seem like her style. Natty by nature, hello. That's a name I've seen before. I recognize the name. I don't think you uh, you hang out in here much, but Natty by nature, I remember you. I'm glad you're here. First time in chat. <laughs> You've been binging the Harry Potter streams for a year. It is good to hear it. Yeah, I, I hope you're uh, familiar. I've got them up on uh, on Spotify now. Anyone who's wondering, you can, uh, wherever you get, y'all get your podcast, check out Flying Sidecar. You should be able to find what you're looking for. All right, I told her. I didn't want to bring this up, but you owe me one. You'd be rotten in a cyclops cave in the sea of monsters if it wasn't for me. She clenched her jaw. Any other favor, Percy? Not this. The Aries cabin's been dissed too many times. And I don't think... And don't think I don't know what people say about me behind my back. I wanted to say, well, it's true, but I bit my tongue. So, what? You're just going to let Kronos crush us? I asked. If you wanted my help so bad, tell Apollo to give us the chariot. You're such a big baby. She charged at me, but Chris got between us. Whoa, whoa, guys, he said. Clarice, you know, maybe he's got a point. She sneered at him. Not you two. She trudged off with Chris at her heels. Hey, wait, wait, I just meant... Clarice, wait. I watched the last sparks from Beckendorf's fire curl into the afternoon sky. Then I headed toward the sword-fighting arena. I needed a break, and I wanted to see an old friend. And that's the end of our second of three chapters for the day. Uh, hey, Natty by Nature says, I have a Spotify subscription just for Sidecar. Hey, Natty by Nature, you are very, very welcome. I'll call you Natty, if you don't mind. Um, y'all, what a chapter. Um, this one, we're starting to see some of the tensions rise at the camp. And, you know, uh, I don't think we've, we're not seeing much of a resolution on its way, right? It's not like they are... They, they've got battles coming up, of course, but it's not like they've got this big mission that if they complete it, things will sort of get better. They just, I mean, they're on edge, right? They're they're all on tenderhooks trying to cope with the stress. Cope with the stress of being basically the only ones who can do anything about this. They've got, there's a whole world of people out there, and while most of the folks that they might really truly care about are here at camp, you know, Percy has his mother um, and uh, other people out in the world, um, Rachel, for instance, uh, and other folks here have got other non-Half-Blood folks that they care about. At the end of the day, as tough as it is to try and, and you know prepare for something enormous and dangerous like this, it's got to be extra tough to know that you have to do it for people who cannot help. 
right? So many people in the in the country because it seems like uh, you know this this is like this is sort of a North America thing. Uh, so many people in on the continent that really cannot play a part in this, and yet they are going to suffer from it if it goes poorly. Rollet brings up an interesting question. What if Rachel's dad's working for Kronos, and that's why them leaving during this wartime is important? Now, that would be a curious thing, wouldn't it, Rollet? Hmm. That would be curious, because it does seem like they're they are on their way out of town, right? They live, in, they live in New York. They're on their way out of there. Interesting. Very interesting. Taking a... Just interesting timing for a trip. It could mean something. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? All right. Now, I have already taken my break, so I think rather than, uh, you know, rather than rolling into a new break, I think I'm just going to keep reading. How do y'all feel about that? Uh, Roll It, Natty, Gwendog, uh, Sparkle Lovegood, Tanisha, thank you very much for hanging out. It's great to have y'all here. Jade Dragon, uh, these are just the, the names that I see recently in chat here, and I am very happy that y'all have joined me tonight. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, we've got one more chapter, and then we are done for the evening, but... Uh, you know, we're cruising in at, you know, if we include the, the sound bite from the top of this, this, uh, top of this stream, we're clocking in at like north of 6,000 words, I think, or 16,000. And I typically try to hover around 12. So we got to get right down to it. Let's do it. Anyone who's coming in late. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. It's Thursday. This is when we read uh, young adult and fantasy literature stuff. We are currently reading Percy Jackson. You can find back episodes over on Spotify. Check out Flying Sidecar wherever you get podcasts. Now, a bit of review for this book. Uh, Percy, of course, has been uh, trying to just sort of understand what does it mean for Kronos to be back uh, we have discovered that part of what it means is that they're going to be launching all sorts of offenses at once. Um, it's bad news for <laughs> for Percy and the gang. Uh, they're they're looking for um, uh, uh, Kronos and the army are looking for any opportunity, and we don't know precisely what their mission is. We know that they want to bring down Olympus, but is that their first stop? Are they coming to camp first? Uh, we know that they have released Typhon from uh, uh, from the mountain where it dwelt for a long time, this terrible sort of monster surrounded by storms. Um, uh, and it is heading for New York. Uh, they know that the Princess Andromeda was headed for the coast as well. Oh, boy. Lots going on. And yet, with all of that, Percy and Annabeth, at the very least, if not more folks, are pretty, pretty confident that whatever the real mission is, Typhon and the Princess Andromeda, the big stuff, those are just distractions. There's something else going on. Some other plot that uh, is going to be even more terrible than the things that they can see. And there's a spy somewhere in camp, and we don't know who it is yet. That's the sitch. Uh, he and Annabeth are not on great terms. He sort of asked her about a dream he had about Rachel Elizabeth Dare. Maybe not his best move. I'm not totally sure what he was trying to get out of that conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, one big development here at camp is that the Ares cabin, led by Clarice, does not intend to help fight. Why? Because 
the Apollo cabin won't give up this flying chariot that they managed to grab on one of their raids. It seems fairly childish, but, well, Clarice has her pride. We'll see how, what this means for the camp at large. Gwen Dog, I hope the new job goes well. Swan Song and Heart Hook, I see y'all. Thank you so much for being here. And folks, now we roll on into our last chapter of the day. This is chapter five. Chapter 5. I Drive My Dog Into a Tree Mrs. O'Leary saw me before I saw her, which is a pretty good trick considering she's the size of a garbage truck. I walked into the arena and a wall of darkness slammed into me. (sighs) Next thing I knew, I was flat on the ground with a huge paw on my chest and an oversized Brillo pad tongue licking my face. Ow! I said, hey, girl, (laughs) good to see you too. Ouch! It took a few minutes for Mrs. O'Leary to calm down and get off of me, but then I was pretty much drenched in dog drool. She wanted to play fetch, so I picked up a bronze shield and tossed it across the arena. By the way, Mrs. O'Leary is the world's only friendly hellhound. I kind of inherited her when her previous owner died. He lived at camp, but Beckendorf, well, Beckendorf used to take care of her when I was gone. He had smelted Mrs. O'Leary's favorite bronze chewing bone. He'd forged her collar with a little smiley face and a crossbones name tag. Next to me, Beckendorf had been her best friend. Thinking about that made me sad all over again, but I threw the shield a few more times because Mrs. O'Leary insisted. She soon started barking, A sound slightly louder than an artillery gun, like she needed to go for a walk. The other campers didn't think it was funny when she went to the bathroom in the arena. It had caused more than one unfortunate slip-and-slide accident. I opened the gates of the arena, and she bounded straight into the woods. I jogged after her, not too concerned what she was getting ahead. Nothing in the woods could threaten Mrs. O'Leary. Even the dragons and giant scorpions ran away when she came close. When I finally tracked her down, she wasn't using the facilities. She was in a familiar clearing where the Council of Cloven Elders had once put Grover on trial. The place didn't look too good. The grass had turned yellow. The three topiary thrones had lost all their leaves. But that's not what surprised me. In the middle of the glade was the weirdest trio I had ever seen. Juniper the tree nymph, Nico D'Angelo, and a very old, very fat satyr. Nico was the only one who didn't seem freaked out by Mrs. O'Leary's appearance. He looked pretty much like I'd seen him in my dream. An aviator's jacket, black jeans, and a t-shirt with dancing skeletons on it, like one of those Day of the Dead pictures. His Stygian iron sword hung at his side. He was only twelve, but he looked much older. And sadder. He nodded when he saw me, then went back to scratching Mrs. O'Leary's ears. She sniffed his legs like he was the most interesting thing since ribeye steaks. Being the son of Hades, he'd probably been traveling all sorts of hellhound-friendly places. The old satyr didn't look nearly so happy. 
will someone, what is this underworld creature doing in my forest? He waved his arms and trotted at his hooves as if the grass were hot. You there, Percy Jackson, is this your beast? Sorry, Linnaeus, I said. That's your name, right? The satyr rolled his eyes. His fur was dust-bunny gray, and a spiderweb grew between his horns. His belly would have made him an invincible bumper car. Well, of course I'm Linnaeus. Don't tell me you've forgotten a member of the council so quickly. Now call off your beast. <laughs> Mrs. O'Leary said happily. The old satyr gulped. Make it go away. Juniper, I will not help you under these circumstances. Juniper turned toward me. She was pretty in a dryad sort of way, with her purple gossamer dress and her elfish face, but her eyes were green-tinted with chlorophyll from crying. Percy, she sniffled, I was just talking about Grover. I know something's happened. He wouldn't stay gone this long if he wasn't in trouble. I was hoping that Linnaeus... I told you, the satyr protested, you'd be better off without that traitor. Juniper stamped her foot. He's not a traitor. He's the bravest satyr ever, and I want to know where he's at. <laughs> Linnaeus' knees started knocking. I, I won't answer questions with this hellhound sniffing my tail. Nico looked like he was trying not to crack up. I'll walk the dog, he volunteered. He whistled, and Mrs. O'Leary bounded after him at the far end of the grove. Linnaeus huffed indignantly and brushed the twigs off his shirt. Now, as I was explaining, young lady, your boyfriend has not sent any reports since we voted him into exile. You tried to vote him into exile, I corrected. Chiron and Dionysus stopped you. They are honorary council members. It wasn't a proper vote. Yeah, I'll tell Dionysus that you said that. Linnaeus paled. I only meant... Now see here, Jackson, this is none of your business. Uh, Grover's my friend, I said. He wasn't lying to you about Pan's death. I saw it myself. You were just too scared to accept the truth. Linnaeus's lips quivered. Mm, no, Grover's a liar, and good riddance. We're better off without him. I pointed at the withered thrones. If things are going so well, where is your friends? If things are going so well, where are your friends? Looks like your council hasn't been meeting lately. Marin and Selenus, I'm sure that you'll be back, he said, but I could hear the panic in his voice. We're just taking some time off to think. It's been a very unsettling year. Yeah, it's about to get a lot more unsettling, I promised. Linnaeus, we need Grover. There's got to be a way that you can find him with your magic. The old satyr's eye twitched. I'm telling you, I heard nothing. Perhaps he's dead. Juniper choked back a sob. He's not dead, I said. I can feel that much. Empathy links, Linnaeus said disdainfully. Very unreliable. So ask around, I insisted. Find him. There's a war coming. Grover was preparing the nature spirits. Without my permission. And it's not our war. 
I grabbed him by the shirt, which was seriously unlike me, but the stupid old goat was making me mad. Listen, Linnaeus, when Kronos attacks, he's going to have a pack of hellhounds. He's going to do everything he can to destroy the things in his path. Mortals, gods, demigods. Do you think he's going to let the satyrs go free? You're supposed to be a leader, so lead. Get out there and see what's happening. Find Grover and bring Juniper some news. Now. Go. I didn't push him very hard, but he's kind of top-heavy. He fell onto his furry rump, then scrambled to his hooves and ran away with his belly jiggling. Grover will never be accepted. He will die in outcast. When he disappeared into the bushes, Juniper wiped her eyes. I'm so sorry, Percy. I didn't mean to get you involved. Linnaeus is still a lord of the wild. You don't want to make an enemy out of him. You don't want to make an enemy out of him. <sighs> no problem, I said. I've got worse enemies than overweight satyrs. Nico walked back to us. Good job, Percy. Judging from the trail of goat pellets, I'd say you shook him up pretty good. I was afraid I knew why Nico was here, but I tried for a smile. Welcome back. Did you just come by to see Juniper? He blushed. Uh, no, that was sort of an accident. I kind of dropped into the middle of their conversation. He scared us to death, Juniper said. Right out of the shadows, but Nico, you are a son of Hades and all. Are you sure that you haven't heard anything about Grover? Nico shifted his weight. Juniper, I tried to tell you, even if Grover died, he would reincarnate into something else in nature. I can't sense things like that. Only mortal souls. But if you do hear anything, she pleaded, putting a hand on his arm. Anything at all. Nico's cheeks got even brighter red. Um, you bet. I'll keep my ears open. We'll find him, Juniper, I promised. Grover's alive, I'm sure. There must be a simple reason why he hasn't contacted us. She nodded glumly. I hate not being able to leave the forest. He could be anywhere, and I'm stuck here waiting. That silly goat's got himself hurt. Mrs. O'Leary bounded back over and took an interest in Juniper's dress. Juniper yelped. Oh, no you don't. I know about dogs and trees. I'm gone. Then she went <laughs> into green mist. Mrs. O'Leary looked disappointed, but she lumbered off to find another target, leaving Nico and me alone. Nico tapped his sword on the ground. A tiny mound of animal bones erupted from the dirt. They knit themselves into a skeletal frame of a field mouse and scampered off. I was sorry to hear about Beckendorf. A lump formed in my throat. How did you... I talked to his ghost... Oh, yeah. Right. I'd never get used to the fact that this 12-year-old kid spent more time talking to the dead than the living. Hey, did he say anything? He doesn't blame you. He figured you'd be beating yourself up, and he said that you shouldn't. Is he going to try for rebirth? Nico shook his head. He's staying in Elysium. He said that he's waiting for someone. I'm not sure what he meant, but... He seems okay with death. It wasn't much comfort, but it was something. I had a vision that you were on Mount Tam, 
I told Nico. Was that real? He said. I didn't mean to be spying on the Titans, but I was in the neighborhood. Doing what? Nico tugged the sword belt. Following a lead. On, you know, my family. I nodded. I knew his past was a painful subject. Until two years ago, he and his sister Bianca had been frozen in time in a place called the Lotus Casino and Hotel. They'd been there for, like, seventy years. Eventually, a mysterious lawyer rescued them and checked them into a boarding school. But Nico had no memories of his life before the casino. He didn't know anything about his mother. He didn't know who the lawyer was or why they'd been frozen in time or allowed to go free. After Bianca died and left Nico alone... He'd been obsessed with finding answers. Zay. Hello. Welcome. Good to have you here. How did it go? I asked. Any luck? No, he murmured. But I may have a new lead soon. What's the lead? Nico chewed on his lip. That's not important right now. You know why I'm here. A feeling of dread started to build in my chest. Ever since Nico first proposed his plan for berate... What? Ever since Nico first proposed his plan for beating Kronos last year, I had nightmares about it. He would show up occasionally and press me for an answer, but I kept putting him off. Nico, I... I don't know, I said. It seems pretty extreme. You've got Typhon coming in, what, a week? Most of the other Titans are unleashed now and on Kronos's side. Maybe it's time to think extreme. I looked back toward the camp. Even from this distance, I could hear the Ares and Apollo campers fighting again, yelling curses and spouting bad poetry. They're no match for the Titan army, Nico said. You know that. This comes down to you and Luke. And there's only one way you can beat Luke. I remember the fight on the Princess Andromeda. I'd been hopelessly outmatched. Kronos had almost killed me with a single cut to my arm, and I couldn't even wound him. Riptide had glanced right off his skin. We can give you the same power, Nico urged. You heard the great prophecy. Unless you want to have your soul reaped by a cursed blade... I wondered how Nico had heard the prophecy. Probably from some ghost. You can't prevent the prophecy, I said. But you can fight it, Nico said in a strange, hungry light in his eyes. Nico had a strange, hungry light in his eyes. You can become invincible. Maybe we should wait. Try to fight without... No! Nico snarled. It has to be now. I stared at him. I hadn't seen his temper flare like that in a long time. Uh, you sure that you're okay? He took a deep breath. <sighs> Percy, I all I mean, when the fighting starts, we won't be able to make the journey. This is our last chance. I'm sorry if I'm being too pushy, but two years ago, my sister gave her life to protect you. I want you to honor that. Do whatever it takes to stay alive and defeat Kronos. I didn't like the idea. 
Then I thought about Annabeth calling me a coward, and I got angry. Nico had a point. If Kronos attacked New York, the campers would be no match for his forces. I had to do something. Nico's way was dangerous, maybe even deadly. But it might give me a fighting edge. All right, I decided. What do we do first? His cold, creepy smile made me sorry I agreed. First, we need to retrace Luke's steps. We need to know more about his past, his childhood. I shuddered, thinking about Rachel's picture from my dream. A smiling, nine-year-old Luke. Why do we need to know that? I'll explain when we get there, Nico said. I've already tracked down his mother. She lives in Connecticut. I stared at him. I'd never thought much about Luke's mortal parents. I've met his dad, Hermes, but his mom? Luke ran away when he was really young, I said. I don't think his mom was alive. Oh, she's alive. The way he said it made me wonder what was wrong with her. What kind of horrible person could she be? Okay, I said. So how do we get to Connecticut? I can call Blackjack. No, Nico scowled. Pegasi don't like me, and the feeling is mutual. There's no need for flying. He whistled, and Mrs. O'Leary came loping out of the woods. Your friend here can help, Nico patted her on the head. You haven't tried shadow travel yet? Shadow travel? Nico whispered in Mrs. O'Leary's ear. She tilted her head, suddenly alert. Hop on board, Nico told me. I'd never considered riding a dog before, but Mrs. O'Leary was certainly big enough. I climbed onto her back and held onto her collar. This is going to make her very tired, Nico warned. So you can't do it that often, and it works best at night, but all shadows are part of the same substance. There's only one darkness, and creatures of the underworld can use it as a road or a door. I don't understand, I said. No, Nico said. It took me a long time to learn. But Mrs. O'Leary knows. Tell her where to go. Tell her Westport, the home of May Castellan. Boy, you're not coming? Don't worry, he said. I'll meet you there. I was a little nervous, but I leaned down to Mrs. O'Leary's ear. Uh, okay, girl. Um, can you take me to Westport, Connecticut? Make Castellan's place? Mrs. O'Leary sniffed the air. She looked into the gloom of the forest. Then she bounded forward straight into an oak tree. Just before we hit it, we passed into shadows as cold as the dark side of the moon. And that is the end of our reading for today. I will remind you all once more, head over to Discord because we're going to be holding the vote over there for our next series starting tonight, okay? It starts tonight. As soon as I'm done with this stream, I'm going to head over there and I'm going to put that uh, vote together. Um, 
It might take me a little while. It will be open for a week, and I will remind you again next week. But don't forget, get to the Discord, folks. Uh, Zay, welcome, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed the stream. If you want to catch up on these, go ahead and check out Flying Sidecar over on uh, wherever you get podcasts. Look for Flying Sidecar. You can find uh, Harry Potter is up there. And um, I would say the first half, maybe first uh, three-fifths of Percy Jackson is up there as well. Um and uh, I w- I'm continuing to update that. I want to say thank you very much to Gwen because Gwen, uh, uh, Nico's voice is one of the ones that I've been like the most sort of anxious about for a while. So I'm glad you like where it's headed. I'm glad you've you've enjoyed where the Nico voice has sort of landed or the direction it's going now at the very least. Hey, Louise, you are very, very welcome. Hey, gang. Gang, I got a question. Do you have anything you want to talk about from all this? Uh, any questions, any commentary on it, anything you found interesting or curious or confusing? Rowlett says, I'm sure it's done on purpose, but Nico's description is making me nervous. It is, isn't it? We have encountered Nico before, and we've, we've seen some of the darkness in his heart and in his eyes. We've known that he has held grudges before. We've, we've watched as he has sort of like... Um, uh, tried to oppose Percy, and then even when he's sort of on the same side as Percy, he's got his own agenda, and we watched him hold a grudge for a very long time. We saw those things especially. But even then, he was never described quite like this. <laughs> Z, Z, you're like exactly too late. Z, like we we literally less than t- less than 120 seconds ago, we finished our last chapter for the evening. Uh, we've still got bad beans, Z laws, but yes, unfortunately, that is the end of the reading for today. Uh, never you fear. That just means that the uh, the vod will be available sooner rather than later. See, it all works out. Don't worry about it, Z laws. But I'm I am glad you you uh, headed back in. I'm glad you stopped in to say hi. Um, now, this 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 Nico issue though. We've never seen Nico described like this. He's got a strange, hungry light in his eyes. He smiles in a way that makes Percy kind of wish he hadn't agreed. It's, quote, his cold, creepy smile made me sorry I'd agreed. End quote. Hmm. Whatever it is on Nico's mind, it doesn't seem like it's exclusively a... It doesn't seem like it's exclusively um, victory or helping the good guys as he sees it in Nico's mind. Whatever it is here, he's not reacting as a tactician. He's not behaving as someone who says, I've got a, a powerful instrument for us to defeat the enemy. Right? Not a powerful weapon, not a new strategy to try, not a shield that will protect them. He's not reacting like that. You know, because that would be confidence and calculation. What this is, he's got a hungry light in his eye. He's got temper flaring up. He has got, um, uh, you know, cold smiles. This is, these are sort of uh, the body language of a much more personal goal, aren't they? I don't know if y'all are picking this up or if you sort of uh, have a different opinion on this. I would be delighted to hear if you do. But 
when I read this, my my read on that body language is definitely that whatever this is, it's much, much more personal than helping the big bad team, uh, helping the big good team beat the big bad team. It's very personal. Now, is this revenge on someone who has wronged him? Is this... Uh, is this his own sort of pursuit of power? Gwendog says, I gotta say, I actually trust Nico, but I see his darkness as an effect of who he is. Uh, or perhaps you mean affect. Maybe maybe that's how you intended for me to pronounce that. Um, I got you. So, so like, sort of a, um, just something that sort of comes with the territory. You know, an almost, like, quasi-genetic quality that just he reads as kind of creepy. That's possible. possible i gotta say though this definitely i mean gwendog like we we know that whatever it is that um uh nico is sort of planning it definitely is something that percy is scared of but that's most of the information that we get from the first two chapters of the day so your whatever you caught from this chapter is most of what we can sort of go on as an audience we discussed a little bit before that um the author here is employing a very strange trick, at least strange because we've never seen it in this series before at all. When we know something, Percy generally knows it, and when Percy knows something, we generally know it. Not this time. This time, Percy knows something that we as the readers do not. Z-Laws says, what chapter are we on again? I'm going to reread my book again. It's the translated version. Just to check up for the next stream. Z-Laws, yes, indeed, we just finished chapter five. We read uh, chapters three, four, and five today. Um, but yeah, that is, you know, we we know enough about Nico to know that he can be swayed by um, by good thinking from someone that he trusts. We, we saw that that Bianca was able to sort of turn him away from a bad path. But was that a one-off thing? Very rarely in in a series, in literature that discusses fatal flaws, it's very, very rare that the individual with this fatal flaw can reject that flaw permanently. Usually, if they are able to overcome their fatal flaw, it's very temporary. It's very, uh, very contextual. You know, it's it's very much dependent on. Okay, I can I can overcome my fatal flaw of uh, rage, right? If my fatal flaw is rage, I can overcome that rage toward one person or in one type of scenario, but it will continue to plague me in all these others. And so I think it's possible that although Bianca certainly had a great effect on Nico in helping to sort of to talk him down from his grudge holding against Percy, in spite of that, it's possible that in every other sort of part of his life, unless he's been able to get some better counsel, and maybe he has, but maybe he hasn't. He's been on his own a lot. Unless he's gotten some better counsel, maybe Nico just continues to hold grudges against everyone but Percy. And even that might be coming back if it's been a while since since he talked to his sister. It's really hard to know. And whatever it is that's happening here with Nico right now, it's very personally driven. There's something in him, you know, he he it's he's smiling, he's got some whatever his plan is, 
it involves something very close to his heart, very close to something that he wants, uh, whether it's a positive thing for him or a negative thing for someone else. Whatever he wants, it's not about the big cosmic battle. It's about something close to home. What is that going to be? Interesting questions. Interesting questions to answer here. And I'm very thankful for you all uh, that you have joined me in our quest to find out.